text the go live button, which means theoretically we are now live to the people. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hooray. Um, yeah. So, um, right. That means once what essentially, eventually, and in some capacity, we're going to get confirmations from the, the many people in the chat that, that, um, that we are live, that they can hear our voices, which is always good. Um, but anyway, uh, Kevin. Well, thank, but, uh, it, uh, yeah, thanks for coming along. Uh, we're going to talk about Pacers. It should be it should be quite fun. Um, all right, and tell you what, let me do let me do this and say um, welcome everyone. Uh, hello, Doctor Kevin hello, Tennant hello. is here. Hello, hello, Kevin. Hello. Hello. Um, yeah, hello everyone. Uh, we're, we're it's going to be a fun episode tonight, I think, um, because. Uh, everyone loves to hate or or hates to love or a combination of the thereof um or loves to love and loves to hate on the <laughs> haters of pacers so we're going to talk about them because um well for all sorts of reasons but as with lots of minutia i think this is something that yourself kevin and, and dr dt who is on hi david i know you're watching this is something that, that we've talked about before which is that the little microcosm stories often end up being really useful ways to just look at the broader structure and the way that the railways work, or or indeed broader society, frankly. But certainly when it comes to railways, little microcosms, often myths, and, and the things that get bolted onto them are quite interesting. So, um, yeah, I mean, we are going to talk about the pacer, but, but, and we're also going to let you formally introduce yourself, but, but, before, in fact, you know what, let's do that now. Dr. Kevin Tennant, tell tell the good people who, who you are before we um, jump into the news. Uh, well, my sort of day job is being a lecturer, a senior lecturer in management at the University of York, basically. So my sort of day job is teaching students about management strategy and well, I would say how it run organisations, but that's probably being a bit too grand, but it's that sort of area. And then my kind of research area is kind of business and management history, really. And we look at the sort of history of organisations and that kind of thing. And obviously, real ways are a you know, good organisation to look at. They're complicated, they're... Yeah, messy, complicated, chaotic. Yeah. yeah, prone to. Yeah, yeah. So, so you, so what percentage of railway and other business history do you find yourself organisational history rather? Do you find like what's the ratio? Do you find? Ooh, well, in, in terms of what I do, maybe about a third of it, something like that. It, well, I started with, um, in terms of transport history, I started with trams, which <laughs> has been kind of well storied elsewhere. But then, yeah, we kind of got into. Well, I kind of got into this area. I'll sort of kind of blame David, but it, it was partly my idea too, because <laughs> what we were interested in was well, this kind of thing about well, how did how did pieces end up being something that were kind of so divisive? Really? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I hope you don't mind that I've I've got you down as a business historian and also a pacer dream smasher there. Um, so uh, yeah, that's uh, just to just to summarise. But no. Um, yeah, so I came, I remember coming to the presentation with uh, yourself and David giving uh, over in uh, over in kind of the, the faraway magical campus, uh, the far end of York, and and I knew what was brewing up because I'd already I think I'd already spoken to both of you already in the pub at some point, and it was a really fascinating and, and much of what we're going to cover in this much of the information in here comes from that research when you kind of built on it. There's, there's a bit more come out of it, um, but uh, yeah, this should be really interesting for everyone, uh, and it's going to be it's going to be data driven. So so lots of the. I like, you know, we all like to basically look at the evidence when it comes to these things, these myths. I've done myth-busting about Woodhead. I've done myth-busting about the Great Central Railway. Actually, I've not done a Great Central Railway episode of, of Rail Matter, but I mentioned it in the Woodhead episode. But um, these are kind of some of the, kind of the great railway myths, and pacers fall into one of these categories of, like, this, this, this mythos 
that's kind of detached from reality. So we're going to kind of bust all that today, I think. But before we do that, I'm going to press this button here because it's time to do the news. Um, first news item. Actually, before we do the news, I always um, look at the look at the um, look at the COVID transport trends, and uh, not much has changed really. We're kind of given that lockdown. I mean, maybe we'll see a bit of a rise here. You can see rail um, kind of bouncing around at about forty percent of uh, of pre covid ridership uh road is is kind of at 95 percent maybe cycling is basically back where it was pre-covid which is really depressing bus services are kind of at 60 percent and rising so uh, what's interesting is bus services are a reasonably good proxy to understand where rail's going to be in in sort of like a month or so it seems to be about the offset so yeah different use cases but um kind of broadly We've still, we've, lots of us have been theorizing as to why buses, certainly in the early days, why there is this dif- difference in buses compared to compared to uh, rail, uh, all sorts of things at play. Anyway, there we go. There's, those are those numbers. Um, not much interesting going on at the moment, just a steady climb. Um, more interesting, perhaps, is um, is, uh, is this excerpt from the There's House of Lords. There's nothing really new in this review. Um, because, of course, electrification has always been a cleaner option. And as I never tire of saying so, the Green Party has been saying this for 30 or 40 years. <laughs> so why hasn't the government taken this as a matter of urgency? You can't hear this, Kevin. And doing it No, I've got no faster. idea what she's saying, but hopefully it's good. I'd like to take this opportunity to remind the House that the Green Party is the... I'm just going to, so, so to just kind of summarise, uh, this is this is a this is a discussion that was happening as a result of the RIA um, rail electrification report that we went through in a rail natter. Was it last time? The time? Oh, buses last time. The time before. Uh, this is in the House of Lords, the other place. Um, they're uh, they're they're discussing. Uh, well, Jenny Jones, esteemed Jenny Jones, um, just stood up and in a, in a very sort of sneery way said, I'll remind everyone that the Green Party have been saying, you know, talking about electrifying railways for 30 to 40 years, which to be fair is true. But also, um, I'm afraid she's set herself up for an owning by Baroness Veer here, uh, you know, for better or worse. Baroness Veer is just about to um, about to point, um, point something out, which is... ...against HS2, a position which I remain a little confused by. I kind of I kind of paused it halfway through the punchline there, which is basically she says, yeah, the Green Party oppose HS2, which is completely baffling. But... So that's the gag. Sorry, Jenny Jones, you set yourself up for that. More importantly is the bit we're about to hear. So everyone listen very carefully to this. But the noble lady is quite right that now is the opportunity to to put our our shoulder to the wheel and to um, electrify our railways uh, as quickly as we can. Uh, Sorry, Kevin, I realise you've just got total radio silence. I've yet to work out how to make sound from this go to you. She's about to say the words rolling programme, which is very exciting. That is why we will be setting out a rolling programme in the uh, forthcoming um, RNEP. That is why we um, take great, great heed in what was written by uh, the network rail-led traction decarbonisation network strategy. Fair play. She also just cited the uh, network rail TDNS, the traction decarbonisation network strategy, by name, uh, without garbling it too much. So uh, kind of fair fair play to that one. I, I haven't looked at... I haven't looked at Baroness Veer's voting record, uh, given her allegiances, probably particularly dubious. But it is good. It's reassuring to see her, her kind of going through that, which is which is good. So rolling program of electrification will be included in the, um, the, the overall decarbonisation plan. That's not government policy, but it's got some very important uh, conclusions therein, which we are looking at and we'll be putting them in the transport decarbonisation. So there we go. Sorry about that, Kev, because you didn't really... Kevin, you didn't hear any of that. However... Uh, it's good news, so it's worth having it here. So, uh, 
rolling program actually mentioned by government or at least a government representative in the Lords. So that's positive news. Right. Anyway, enough of people talking and you not being able to hear them. Um, The other big (laughs) news uh, is actually embargoed until tonight. But everyone knows what's happening, which is because it's been reported repeatedly by everyone, which is that Great British Railways is going to come into existence as of uh, the next time. So you can see here we've got a nice picture of a bin and it's empty. (laughs) And then we've got a nice picture of the railways at 1993 and they combine those two and you get a bin with stuff in it. Um, and yeah, the, the, so the RA93 is getting binned. It was a dreadful piece of legislation. I'm, I'm uh, interested to see what this new document will do, what it, whether it will talk about some things that it, I expect yeah. it not to. Um, we're going to be talking about it next week in the next episode because it's, it, it's getting released tomorrow. So we'll find out uh, if they release the PDF so I can read through it. It'll be next week's episode, theoretically. Anyway, so yeah, so it's going to be called Great British, Great British Railways. It will use um, it will use the um, it will use Rail Alphabet 2. It will use the um, the corporate identity symbol. So we will have that, although the name is awful. Uh, I'm sure there's a better name that's more compressed and kind of covers this better. Anyway, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's just me. I can't remember. Anyway, so what else is in the news? Oh yeah, did you did you see this, Kevin? This is quite interesting. This was actually from the news last week, but I just couldn't squeeze it in. Which is that the um, the competition winner for the network, and it ties into the previous news actually as well yeah, yeah. about branding. Um, and it's uh, it's the network rail standard station design. And uh, yeah, I, I didn't. I quite like this. I think it looks quite contemporary and and fine yes. like it, i actually wasn't uh, I, d- I didn't hate the old british rail standard station i mean it wasn't hugely inspiring you know you see them in places i don't know where, where are some good examples like trent trent valley and i don't know uh well coventry was an example of it really doing it being used to its best but there are lots of smaller stations that have, what's the name of the standard british rail construction uh, there was a thing it was through the 70s and 80s i can't yeah, remember um, the the architecture people are going to be shouting at me through the through the screen. Um, <laughs> anyway, I quite like this. I, I mean, you know, there I'm sure there are things people people can pick holes in, but I I quite like timber in in construction. I I think you know it, it can be it, it often ends up being used alongside a lot of plastic, so it can be a bit of greenwashing. But when used properly and sensibly, it can look, look quite good. I like the fact there's a clock. It's turning it into a civic space. I like the the style of branding. I think it's good. It's good. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be rockets. It just it just has to be fine, you know. Anyway, so um, yeah, I quite like that. What do you think, Kevin? You're, do you like it? Yeah, it's better than uh. Well, it's it's, it's interesting because it has a kind of continental feel to it. Although I can see yeah. the fences there, but yeah. yeah, it's better than the shipping container in a road that they put in in Reading, right? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the ship, that, or, or the shoebox for for um right. what they were putting in 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 um in Birmingham. Yeah, uh, that's so it looks it, it looks quite good, and it should be cheap to construct. I think that would be the yeah yeah. Exactly. There's no although at the same time, there's no kind of like substantial building, is there? So. Yeah, I, people were saying are they just going to get wet? I, I went through Wakefield. Yeah. I went through Wakefield Westgate the other day, and I'm conscious that the new and it's the same in Derby. The the, pal, the um, canopy's so high that you just get soaked because the rain blows in. Um, uh, yeah. Mr. Mr. Tim Dunn, not sure who that is, but Mr. Tim Dunn says clasp. Of course, it's clasp. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> uh, clasp is the name of the was the name of the British Rail sort of modular esque standard design catalog to build station buildings. I, I don't think it was awful. I, I thought it was, I think clasp's all right. Uh, yes, Simon Hawthorne, yes, Clasp, Consortium of Local Authorities Special Programme. Is that what that really means? Anyway, right, so enough of that. We, we, we're 13 minutes in, we haven't mentioned Pacers yet much. So, <laughs> oh, uh, this, uh, this, and I, the reason I put this in, because I don't normally just put in random Twitter nonsense, 
Um, this is not this is not a tram. This is just a bus. It looks like a tram, and it has some of the benefits of tram in terms of like how many people are in it. But for the most part, it 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 doesn't have all the benefits that trams do. Um, and we actually have a very good person to talk about such things uh, with us tonight. Kevin, t- talk to us about the permanence of infrastructure and, and, and where and kind of where the lines blur and what the benefits of trams over, you know, what the percep- kind of perceived yeah. public perception benefits of trams or even maybe things that look like trams are. Um, yeah. So, the, the, well, the permanence thing is supposed to be, so Canada, it doesn't just have to fight trams, but it's that idea that if you know where public transport is and it's visible, mm then you're more likely to use it. So it's about trying to get kind of users that wouldn't necessarily automatically use public transport to get onto public transport, so mood or shift. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the theory is is that if it's, it's visible, it's good information, that kind of thing, then, then it's easy to use. I mean, so probably the one good thing about this whole thing, and as usual, you know, there's always that kind of, huge burst of enthusiasm about these things and then nothing much happens afterwards right yeah it's because the technology i mean as a brief interlude yeah the technology behind this is a bit rubbish and where it, wherever it's been used before they've ended up being ripped out um yeah. because the technology is actually and it's a, it's essentially a gadget ban to avoid better investment but that doesn't mean that bussy looking trammy looking buses aren't a bad thing as you say yeah i mean it could be that so actually one good thing here might actually be that they paint where the bus goes on the road Mm. Which would be a good idea, because, I mean, I've just moved house lately and I'm still trying to work out what the route of the local buses is. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 for example, so that kind of thing might actually not be a bad idea. Um, and as you say, but, it's that permanent yeah. in terms of, like, unified branding, you know, uh, stations, you know, stations rather than just bus shelters, but actually, you know, permanent infrastructure for level access onto the bus. These are all good things that trams bring and, and yeah. that, that these systems can bring. But this particular yeah. system, what happened was someone, uh, a blue tick on Twitter got very excited about this and then proceeded to get ratioed uh, because they were like, look at this amazing tram. That's not a tra- There's no such thing as a trackless tram. Anyway, enough of this wittering. We're going to talk about pacers. Hey, there we go. There's a pacer getting his face smashed in. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, let, yeah. Basically, uh, enough of all this wittering. Enough of the news. We're 16 minutes into an episode about pacers. Um, it's high time we got cracking. So, welcome to tonight's rail natter. City 225 fades away. Uh, of course, there is a bouncy pacer in the intro video because they, they are part of the, the railway zeitgeist. They are part of people's mentality. There's a nice picture of a, of a <laughs> knackered Class 141 in Iran, uh, unloved, and I think about to be scrapped. Uh, RIP. Um, yeah, they, these do occupy a sort of a strange space. Let's bring, let's bring our faces uh, together. Here we are. We're in the top corner. Hello, everyone. Um, so, yeah, so uh, pacers, that like... I'm glad the pacer exists. Maybe it's strange to say that. It's a bit weird because, it, you know, I'd rather they were never introduced onto the railways. And as we're going to find out <laughs> later, there, there there was no benefit to them being introduced. And it was basically a big accident uh, and people getting ahead of themselves and thinking something was a good idea. And everyone sort of, and we'll discuss that shortly. But <laughs> part of me is glad they exist because they capture so much of what is weird about railway culture particularly i mean as, as as being british i'm sure there's bizarre railway culture everywhere but 
this feels like a particularly good representation of how bizarre British railway culture gets in that these things are loved or hated to be loved or loved to be hated because they represent so many, I don't know, yeah. So we're going to pick through... Enigmatic. They are enigmatic, exactly, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I think, I mean... So, I mean, I took out my, my Hornby piercer, for example. Oh, yeah, there it is. Wait a minute. I'm going to so, get you larger face. Let's, let's get you up next to me. Yeah, there it is. There the Hornby made, you know, <laughs> made, made, you know, they made pieces, you know. So, you know, there's so many other trends they could have made, you know. Yeah, but exactly. they must have thought there was a market for it, right? So Yeah, yeah there definitely is. <laughs> and, and so, and here's, here's, a, here's a 141. I mean, nominally looking in better, Nick. Uh, yeah. But, I quite like this optimistic Metro Train branding it's got going on. This is this is hopelessly optimistic. What is Metro Train about this? Anyway, they've even well, the stuck the lead the, sign in wrong. It's just yeah, look at it. What a depressing the, sight. The train's probably like three years old in the picture. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I mean, I actually remember at the the Weirdale Railway when they ran one four ones. They ran a one four one at least, hmm. and that was the whole Weirdale Railway for a while. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. They they. they 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 wouldn't believe me when I told them that the plate that said 1984 was the time it was built, or 1982 or whatever. Yeah. They thought it was the midlife refurbishment. Some yeah, exactly. Some sort of uh, some sort of ancient. And, and we're going to go through the history a bit, thanks okay. to nicking a few slides out of the 158. Actually, it was nice. I was got, went back to a very early episode of Real Matter to nick some slides to to bring us in. Anyway, so what we're discussing really here is is this this whole theme. And so there are several big themes, but they're all basically asking the same sort of question. And and, and we're going to start with this question and kind of explore it a little bit, which is that the idea of the pacer as a pariah or as some sort of kind of uh, collective pleasure. Um, and so yeah, I've I've uh, heaped in some excerpts well, that you sent over really about pacers, and you can see pacers you know, being used as, as sort of, this is the one you always pick out, which I like, which is, um, which is the pacer being used as a, this, this, this is a pacer here. Wait a minute, there's nothing. This here is a, as a pacer. This is referring to TPE, which of course have famously, uh, never operated pacers. Uh, yeah, I, I quite like that. And so do the pacer just gets cited as an, an example of like total railway decay, right? Yes. Yeah, so it's basically, and it became more than that. I think it became a political symbol of, um, in the late kind of 2010s, particularly of kind of the north of England getting left behind. So in terms of, you know, levelling up agendas or whatever, it became, yeah. it was adopted by the kind of new statesman, kind of guardian type media, if you like. Yeah, yeah. As, as a kind of a, as a kind of a, a sort of an icon, a broader icon. I think the website City Metric might also have. Yeah, yeah, kind I of think again, so. Part of that sort of, so it kind of, it kind of helped to push that, sort of view of paces as being something you know kind of suboptimal but not without but you know not not really thinking about why or yeah and it's that. true that they're often used generically without exploring some of the things we're going to explore now which is a bit of a shame because it's you know they could have done yeah. the same research you 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 guys have done and and you know and, and yeah, actually yeah. maybe explored it but anyway there we are um, thing, yeah yeah using publicly available files yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. obviously for journalists using you know publicly available files would because as we're going to identify, the the story is they didn't need to exist. We didn't need to go through this suffering. They could have just got a load <laughs> of extra one fifties instead. Anyway, right. So, um, but as you say, we've we've got I've I've filched the same slide. So we've got a, a pacer cake here. Uh, we've got uh, Vicky Pipe being very excited about the one four four there. Um, this never happened. This this th- did it happen? I don't know if this happened. No, it didn't. It, it was, was murdered. Happen, it was it was it was, it was taken off the. It was taken away from the chance to happen thanks to coronavirus. Um, yeah, basically, it was kind of inspired by the big tour that they did at, for the one two five. Yeah, and and so 
Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I think I think they basically want it to do the same for Pacer, go to, you know, start in a Whitby and end up in Blackpool and then go back across to Keyforts and then go down to Wales. Something crazy like that, you <laughs> know. So which, which which would have been fun. I'm sure it would have yeah. been a lot of fun. And actually, you know, just because these are awful and should never have existed doesn't mean that there's not, you know, we can't acknowledge people's positive, you know, you know, positive feelings about them. And, and a lot of it, I suppose, is wrapped into the, the, the kind of the this this element is wrapped into people's memories of their youth or memories of their of kind of past times and, 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 a, and a feeling of what's not doesn't exist anymore associated with these trains or, you know, um, yeah much as with HST still operating, you know, these are trains that shouldn't be operating anymore, but actually there's a huge, rightly, a huge font. Okay. For the HSTs, rightly a huge fondness for them for these. Eh. Um, but like a huge fondness for these trains. And, uh, and it's, um, yeah, so it's, yeah. Um, the pace of cake. from the blue thing as well. So it's just because it's every day, it's not, yeah. that it's not worth commemorating. Yeah, way. it's it's this it's this interesting thing about that you know there there aren't many southern um, commuter units in in preservation, which is yeah. <clears throat> which is really strange because those are probably some of those Mark One derived you know horrendously dangerous and thankfully no longer in operation. But a lot of those Mark One derived um, EMUs are what the majority of rail travellers through quite a long period of time were were lived on you know for quite a few hours of the day. Um, anyway, uh, interesting stuff. So. Uh, was so the, kind of all as I said, all these things come back to different questions. This is another frame of the question, which is was the awfulness of the pacer, um, a worthy sacrifice? We haven't really talked about what's bad about the pacer yet, have we? Maybe we, maybe we should get maybe we should maybe we should very briefly remind ourselves what is awful about the pacer before we uh, do this. Let's get our large faces up, Kevin. How many did you? I didn't used to travel on pacers much when I was a little one because I was in Scotland and we had lovely we had lovely one five eight sprinters. Uh, <laughs> and then yeah, you were you were lucky at that. Know, yeah, right? in that sense. Yeah, I, was, that's one of the things that always interested me is how they never got to Scotland, knowing the Scottish network a bit. But yeah, they, yeah, they, they, uh, well, the, the road quality isn't great. <laughs> they, they had bus seats in originally, so they didn't even have proper railway seats. Although to be fair, some of the older DMUs had bus seats too. Yeah, people yeah. forget that. But yeah. but yeah, they, they, they had bus seats in. You, they had like they squashed five people across the way in. Um, you know, they're they're very. They're very noisy. Um, yeah, they're yeah, not much soundproofing. They're kind of rattly things. They they bounced around because of the design of their suspension. Um, they screamed because of the design of their suspension, which we'll touch on very briefly while we go through the yes. history of them. Um, this thing doesn't run very well, even in model form. Oh, really? That's so interesting. Four, yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, even on a well-built layout, they won't run well. They're it, yeah, 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 yeah. Miniature, they haven't managed to miniaturize um, miniaturize the uh, the the single bogey axle uh, sing, single axle bogey uh, design. Anyway, right. So yeah, was the so so this, this so pacers aren't great. They're they're clearly not a great uh, train. And so, but, but but often you hear people saying, well, we're going to look at this in a second what people say about them. Uh, and the question really is, was the awfulness of the pacer a worthy sacrifice? And so we've got two quotes here. And Ant Cools, Anthony, I'm, I'm so sorry that I'm using your quote or that we're using your quote here. Um, uh, it's mean of us to use it. But unfortunately, it just captures a lot of the common stuff that gets said about pacers very nicely in a single paragraph. <laughs> so it's too easy to use the quote. So we've got Gervish at the top here, uh, Terry Gervish. Um, saying that the maintenance and modification costs mammoth. are the... F uh, say again? In this kind of mammoth... Uh... Yeah, I was going to say, oh, you, you're holding it up. Yeah, crikey. Yeah, in one, yeah, of, the, in one yeah. of the mammoth uh, tomes. Hey, the maintenance so and modification costs... Yeah, yeah. This, is, 
the one time he mentions Pacers, but anyway. Oh, really? Is that it? Yeah, oh, go, yeah. go on, give it a wiggle again. Terry, we're, we're wiggling your book around. Hi, Terry, if you're watching, but yeah. I don't actually have a go- copy of Gervish myself. I, uh, to my to my discredit, I've got Bradley's um, history. I need to get Gervish's. Anyway, right. So, I digress, as often happens. Anyone new to Rail Natter, I can only apologise, but this, this is this is a theme of the of the series. <clears throat> so, um, Terry Gervish, yeah, the, the the modification of maintenance costs of the first and second builds exceeded forecast levels by thirty and forty five percent, respectively. The whole life cost of the new trains was scarcely lower than that of the first generation DMUs they replaced. That's that's Terry Gervish in his two thousand two book. Um, contrast that with the general feeling, which is summarised neatly by Anthony. This was out of Rail Magazine, actually. Um, the proposals were to cut railway lines, and obviously people didn't really want that. Uh, I think it's fair to say that for a number uh, of rural routes, certainly in the southwest of England, the pacer was almost a saviour because it reduced costs so much. Low running costs, low maintenance costs. The fact that the pacers have been going up for over 30 years is testimony to that, although they are much maligned by many. So uh, Anthony there... Um, Really summarising the, 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 that, basically the myths around it um, and repeating them in a way that's very neat for us. So sorry, Anthony, I, I, I'm not doing you a service here, but um, I, you may well have changed your mind. You also probably were being quite political with that answer, given the, it might well have been accompanying some sort of pacer, uh, loving type article. I don't know. Anyway, so th- those two quotes really summarise that, that kind of opposing feel, the, kind of the evidence on one side and then and everyone not just anti- everyone kind of a large number of people's gut feelings about the, the vehicles right so um kevin i'm gonna hammer through a potted history shout at me or interject yep. if i say something wrong or if you want to generally just add something in um yeah uh, so we're gonna go back to so in in the olden days when everything was in black and white there were rail buses these were not um these you know the pacer was not the first rail bus by a long measure actually i should have put the um i've absolutely missed a trick in not putting in an image of wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute i've missed a trick by not putting in an image of um of the uh, uh, uh bank that used to run on um that used to run over the Connell Bridge. I have an image, a nice high res image of that Shara Bank, which I can't find quickly and so can't put into the slide deck seamlessly and pretend that everything was uh, <laughs> cleverly set up and that I know what I'm doing. But anyway, so so the you know these the rail bus has existed in some form or another for a very long time. Um here's an example of one uh, I think this is the is it the Park Royal or the Royal Park rail bus? I don't know much about these. They look That's funky good. as hell. Um yeah, yeah, I know, right? Craig and Doran, uh, Craig and Doran, which is, um, yeah, on that side of the country, uh, up that corner. Anyway, yeah, so they, they've existed for a while, um, and indeed, they they used to run on the railway near me, on the Durant Valley Light Railway. They used to run as a, an attempt to kind of glean ridership on that line, doomed unfortunately. Um, anyway, right, so waffle on, uh, and That's right, so yeah, rail buses. Countries. Most Say again? countries have rail buses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a standard thing, right? It's not unheard. Yeah. You know, it's it, it was a thing. Um, at the same time, we had lots and lots of diesel multiple units being introduced through the second half of the twentieth century. Certainly, in the middle of the twentieth century, had lots of, of of multiple units, diesel multiple units being introduced that basically looked like this. I mean, they 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 all almost all look pretty much like this, right? Um, not not much to discern between them. Um, and actually, so 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 there was kind of there was quite a lot of development. Then the last of that generation of of multiple units actually came out in 1963. Is this thing? I don't know what class this is actually. Anyone, anyone telling me about class? Transpennine 200, uh, 100 and 
120 or something uh, like that. 120, yeah, that's right. It's got very fancy curved windows, which is which think, is quite snazzy. I'll probably get slotted in the chat now. I think it's one of the Transpennine units. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, <laughs> and we're both now going to get slotted in the chat. Uh, but that's yeah. fine. Um, so that's 1963. And then there was a giant... Then, then, then basically... That was it in terms of multiple, diesel multiple unit development. There was a big pause after that. Meanwhile, there's this chap, Dr. Alan Wickens. You remember him from uh, the APT episode? Um, this is Dr. Alan Wickens is one of the most important railway engineers in history, after, only after Trevithick and the Stevensons. Um, he is the number four, if you like, if you include George and Robert, the number four most important railway engineer in history of all time. Uh, sounds like a bold claim. Listen to my Gadget Band episode where I explained that, the, the one on Maglev. Anyway, um, his team were developing all sorts of snazzy stuff in, in terms of trying to get over some of the issues of increased speed, particularly due to related to, to kind of hunting, so that the, the movement of bogies through the track that results in wear. And they they came up with test vehicles. Uh, and one of them is is here, HSF V1. This is currently up in Shildon. I think it will be moving down to... Uh, oh, actually, maybe I, I don't know where it's going to end up. It's probably going to end up. Hopefully, it's going to end up as part of the bigger railway story, so it might well find its way down to York. Anyway... This thing is an incredible... It looks not very interesting or important. It is actually an incredibly <laughs> important rail vehicle. And almost all modern railway vehicles own, owe, owe a, a legacy, owe a heritage to this funny-looking freight wagon, which was capable of running at very high speeds. It said 90 on there, but they ran... They, there was a family of these, and some of them they ran up to ridiculous speeds. Um, and, uh, yeah, so this thing, as you can see, it has, uh, if I if I squiggle on it, you can see here it has. Uh, I didn't really want to do that. It's got one axle per. Well, it's yep. not really a bogey. They're they're kind of bogeyed. You can see they're designed to just have a single axle. So what I mean by that, it's just got you know, it's just got two axles per per vehicle, um, and that's a bit weird because it, you'd expect that to not ride very well at, at high speeds. But this was this was really a test to test a load of features, including these sorts of these things here and and some of the kind of features of. Uh, essentially damp kind of they're called yaw dampers so out of this came the yaw damper which we know about recently because some of them fell off a load of calf units which have replaced <laughs> pacers ironically so there's all the, the the history gets complicated but anyway there is hsfv1 and the, um the thing is is that the kind of the you know freight load doesn't tend to complain about the ride quality can can confirm i mean these were testing kind of stuff yeah. that was then eventually going to go so that was 1964 uh these were then oh i'll get to the, that bus in a minute these were actually <laughs> as part of the development for a high speed for a new high speed rail vehicle which we all know ended up being the, the advanced passenger train but actually the developments of this went into the bogies for for the hst and into into other vehicles as well those yaw dampers um so that's 1964 uh so you see we had the last uh last dmu then 1964 we had hsfe1 fine then we have the uh, the Midland the the Midland the um the the Leyland National Bus. Tell us about the Leyland National Bus, Kevin. Yeah, so I mean, let, so the, well, so so this is kind of quite interesting in itself because because <laughs> right, so this is for a kind of British Leyland, if you like, enters, and this is a this is a firm that's kind of you know it's beloved by kind of business historians as an example of a kind of classic British basket case firm. Yeah. in itself that <laughs> yeah, yeah. everything was going wrong in British Leyland you know so if you look at it's kind of car manufacturing side you know it was never as competitive it's as going Ford. horribly yeah <laughs> didn't have a clear strategy they were always on strike and one of the things that's quite interesting was that the government so they, they, there was the British motor company that owned Morris and Austin before that and Ruver as well and a, a load of other brands so the, the British way of doing business basically 
was to buy up for was for kind of competing companies to merge together in the hope that just somehow the company being bigger yeah. without actually merging the company together would make it more competitive somehow. So what the government then did in 1969 was forced Leyland, um, to, which was the bus manufacturer and lorry manufacturer, and it was actually quite a successful firm. And it, it, it basically forced Leyland, and I think Bristol as well, to merge together. So it forced Bristol and Leyland to merge, and then it forced Leyland to merge with uh, the British Motor Corporation to form British Leyland. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so 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 this, and then after this, actually, in 1974, the company was nationalised when it was again virtually going bankrupt. So yeah. so so this is a kind of a this bus is a kind of a triumph of this kind of era, late 60s, early 70s corporatism, really. Yep. So so this is a period when kind of buses out of London and out of big cities um, were, were, were themselves nationalized into the National Bus Company. Um, and this bus was a kind of project to create a kind of standard bus for the National Bus Company. Yeah, and they made loads so, of, I mean, they spewed loads of them out, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So anybody that grew up in Britain, you know, 70s, 80s, has seen these buses or traveled on these buses. Uh, you know, this is, these are kind of ubiquitous. Um, there were more than 7,000 built. Um, they were designed to be simple, easily replaceable. But the, the reason that they were attracted or attractive for the Pacer project, apart from anything else, is that the body shell was also designed to roll over in a crash. So it was, it was thought to be more real-worthy than other types of bus. Uh, okay, yeah. That could have been used as well, like, um, like the Bristol uh series for example so yeah <laughs> uh, okay so then so so then if we so going from buses back to our and we might talk a bit more about buses later and, and a bit more about the potential idea that that the pacer was a continuation of of, of this line for leyland and, and we'll talk about some of that stuff later but back to the railway where on earth then did the idea of, of, of this like where did they go from the national bus to deciding yeah. that this frankly very futuristic looking vehicle what 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 what, what's the story there it kind of comes from so this is the thing it it starts in the research department at british rail which was very active um in the 70s really and it it it, it, it's kind of there's kind of an interest in basically bringing a bus onto the railway (laughs) and so they they work very closely or quite closely relatively closely live with with leyland to do this and leyland then think oh we've got we've got a new business here uh, and the irony is, is that by the time that this is starting to happen, the Leyland National project itself is kind of being wound down. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is the, one of the ironies, right? So the time that the pieces, production pieces are built, is actually when they stop producing new Leyland Nationals. But yeah, but the they, Leyland thought that so so they, they wanted to go a lot further. Okay, they wanted to have um, as we see here, kind of long trains that could be used in London. Yep. And Birmingham, so. <laughs> and so I think so. So my perception of what happened here is is that we had a situation where you know you had the BR research team. Uh, someone else interestingly asked the question: Did the pacer introduce the yaw damper to passenger use? No, no, no. The yaw damper was introduced much, much earlier than that with with rail vehicle. You know, the HST has yaw dampers mm. well in advance of the pacer. But uh, it's a, a relevant question because. Essentially, the research had gone well. We've got these high-speed freight vehicles, and there's you know and, and the national bus, and there's a combination there. And it was it was sort of started out as a bit of a well, what could we do with it? 
without yeah. without the without really thinking about the wider policy implications, the wider potential rollout. It was more well, we have a budget to do research for the sake of research, which is a good yeah. thing, by the way. And the railway fundamentally lacks this these days. Um, you know, the industry, you know, industry side research just for the sake of it. They went, well, just let's see what we can do with this thing. We've got a, we've got a, a lightweight freight vehicle that can go fast. It's it's lighter because it doesn't have t- uh, twin axle bogies. So let's um, shove a bus body on it, shove the national bus body on it, see what we get. And it looks to me like Leyland, with this branding, went you know, with some way down the line on this process, went, we've got something here. We can monetize this. This is good. So, well, so yeah. Sorry, go this on. This is the thing is that there's a hoop. As if all these kind of big transport projects were kind of novel new novel kind of new sort of but yet unique vehicles are kind of built if you like there's always this hope that exports will follow yeah right and and Brel yeah, yeah also got excited by it for the same reason when it get got to the kind of production stage yeah yeah um, there, was, there was a general interest and it kind of comes down and i know you talk a bit about and i'm going to hop onto the next image because it looks super this is what they were supposed to look like inside super futuristic and 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 the the idea yeah and i suppose this is where where the kind of the technology talk about sublimity talk about the sublime tell us about tell us about that as a, as a kind of a line of thought yeah so the sublime's idea basically comes from the work of ben fleberg who looks at kind of big engineering and these kinds of projects and he argues that basically one of the reasons that policymakers go for big projects really is is that they have you know they they, they have a kind of a um a shininess to them essentially so you have a kind of an aesthetic sublime that you know, you're going to build a project because it looks good, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, you know, it looks futuristic. It looks modern. So a good example of this is, you know, any any football World Cup now it has to come with new shiny stadiums. And that's yeah. because, <laughs> yeah. you know, you have that kind of, you have that kind of aesthetic sublime. You build a stadium in St. Petersburg that looks like a spaceship. Well, this is the same kind of thinking here, right? We have like, you know, this is going to somehow look quite cool and modern. So I know that Leyland National looks a bit naff nowadays, but... It, it, at that time, it looked compared to the kind of buses that had gone before, right? If, if kind of you know, think of AEC Regals or the the Routemaster might be one that people are more familiar with, right? But you think of that kind of era of bus. Yeah, they, they were kind of pushing the envelope modern, a bit in terms looked, of styling. You know, yeah, in terms of industrial design, and it's yeah. and it's also part, I suppose, at this stage in the process where Leyland are getting very excited about it, and and Brel actually. They're getting excited about it as it's sort of transitioning, probably out of the control of the BR research team now. It's starting yeah. to get picked up by others and thinking, ah, we can this this can be a thing. The challenge is just like so much, like just like we've talked about in previous Railnatter episodes about um, you know Hyperloop and why kind of gadget bans find their way into reality or, or or don't. But the ease of which people push those things is because it's very easy to make something look futuristic and problem free in renders or artist impressions. And so yeah. I think if we skip to the next image, this yeah. this is starting to look more like the reality, but it still looks kind of funky, right? It's still looking yeah. interesting. It's different, you know. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 yeah, it looks, yeah, it looks kind of strange at the same time, right? But that's the thing is it's kind of blue sky thinking as well. And the sort of first prototype, Lev 1, that they built, it looks a bit like this. Yeah, yeah. It looks a bit more rubbish than this. To be honest. Yeah, I was going to say we, this. This is the di- and this is why I put this slide in here because uh, I can quite happily jump from uh, the the artist's impression to the reality, which yeah. is obviously <laughs> somewhat less glamorous. This is Lev. I think this is Lev One. 
Uh, it might be left. There were a couple of these. They found their way around. For a while, everyone was on the Wednesday. Actually, they might still be on the Wednesday. I don't know if it's it's moved. Um, yeah, this is it's quite a vibe. And this was this was still basically in prototype mode. Clearly, the fact that it's got the Leyland branding on it quite prominently, uh, yep. you see here, uh, Leyland are already rubbing their hands together. But from a British Rail perspective, my understanding of looking through the documentation you've got and sort of reading between the lines of the history is that probably at this point, um, certainly the technical people within British Rail were still not thinking about this as being a long-term yep. practical solution. This was still a, well... Uh, you know, see where how far we can go with this. So I think this thing started running faster than they could keep up, and then it probably yeah. found it's at this point where it was becoming a, you know, it was lines lines that were being submitted to the Treasury. At which point, probably people further up in British Rail were having to justify those those line items to the to the Treasury in some form, and then the Treasury are probably asking questions like, "Well, what's this going to be for?" Um, and that's probably where it started going places it probably ought not to have so well, left yeah. one so about kind of 19 about kind of 1978 79 the kind of um the passenger department starts to get interested in it mm. and its possibilities then and that's when you start to get this huge kind of interest in okay let's spend so they built this prototype and actually at first they're actually not even it's not even powered the first oh really okay. build a left one yeah and then they power it to see how that works. Okay, it vibrates quite a lot. It's got a lot of problems, <laughs> yeah. but they they go they keep going with this. And then the passenger department kind of so the passenger department's got that problem that all those old DMUs. So a lot of them were built after the modernisation plan. They're now the the mean age of the fleet is about twenty years. There's also the problem of asbestos starting to appear as well. Yeah, so yeah. so there's this whole kind of climate of they're kind of sort of thinking already. You know, and a lot of the trains built under the modernization plan, they were in short production runs, they weren't very good themselves, yeah. right? So they're starting to think, well, okay, we need to replace these trains and this is somehow where... at some point. And and they kind of grab onto this. <laughs> and this is where the nebulousness of you cannot pull the technological away from the political. The, the, you you yeah. cannot pull those two apart. And so as we said, the last the last DMU that was that was built was sixty-three. And there'd essentially be no attention to, to their replacement, particularly at that since that point. So, yeah, suddenly there was the realisation, oh, actually, we've got quite a large fleet that was built in quite a short space. Like, a, a large number of vehicles are going to need replacing in quite a short space of time. Yep. And as you say, all of a sudden, this is appearing and going past people's eyes. And then there are people going, well, what is that? Okay, right, well, that becomes a thing. And so... So we reached 1980. So so we've already said, you said 79, they'd already realised that they needed a, a new multiple unit. So we reached 1980. There's the APT uh, not doing, already not doing particularly well at this point. So <laughs> so we've got, so it, I mean, this, you know, this was trialling the same technology that, um, you know, that Pacers were, were eventually going to run around with. Well, you know, the, the Pacer unit, the, the Lev 1 had already been whizzing around on similar technology to, to the, the sort of the stuff that enabled us to have these lovely bogies and, and oh, so on and so forth. It was a case say, that the the APT had gone off in a different direction. The sort of the, from what I can work out, the sort of tree of the high speed freight wagon had gone off in a different way in the later seventies. Yeah, so there was well, because there, there were a state, fleet yeah. of different HSFV ones, and they they fed into the yeah. yaw damper research, which kind of which is what gave us led, led us to APT. But yeah, they'd continued with that development because they were looking, they were still looking at. Uh, other potential, you know, freight, faster freight. They were trying to deal with yoy, you know, kind of um, uh, hunting problems with freight as well. Um, yeah, so so the HSFE one was continuing to be used in research after APT had already started becoming its own thing. Yeah, um, 
So in terms of our own back to the pacers, well, the Lev One had become uh, a bit more of a practical train looking thing and then here we have the this is the class 140 uh or, or kind of sketches of what it would become and it's interesting they were referring to it not as the rail bus but as the lightweight diesel multiple unit this was and, and this i think and i think you'll you'll touch on this again this was felt to be just the future of the dmu yes yeah, so, i think so i love this i just love this image because it, it kind of creates a sense of kind of like metamorphosis so like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly or something like that so yeah, yeah. Even though basically that 140 is basically just two buses stuck end to end, but well, <laughs> but what happens here is is that they they kind of there's a, some discussion about well okay we need you know a vehicle that can fit about 100 people, um, but we you know we very rarely run single car units on British Rail really so the only other single car unit was the class 121 again yeah. I'll probably get slotted at that time probably get slotted <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that but still um, but. They didn't. There wasn't much. So the, the the thing was is that apart from you know the Stourbridge branch line or whatever, this kind of the Cardiff Docks branch line. There's kind of they kind of say, well, we need one that can. We we need a unit that's it's cheap to operate, but it can withstand occasional. It needs hours. to be able to deal with a little surge every now and then, which a single yeah. car can't. Yeah. So a double, a double car was needed, and that was kind of okay. So that was when they sort of developed this, the class one forty. Yeah, um, which, which you can about, see here in, in the depot there, uh, looking looking quite shiny. Uh, I should have put the picture of it at Keith and Dufton looking knackered. But anyway, actually, they've painted up half of it, so it's not looking quite so knackered anymore. Um, yeah, there's the 140. And this is kind of sent, yeah, it's kind of sent around the country, really. Mm. Um, it's sent to Leeds because the West Yorkshire PTE are already very keen on it. It's, um, you know, it's sent to... Uh, Scotland for a bit, it's sent to Wales for a bit, it's sent around, I think it's sent to East uh, Suffolk line for a little bit as well. It's kind of sent around the country to promote it, essentially. Um, But even before this prototype is finished, they're already starting to talk about putting it into production. Yeah, so this is, and this is the worrying bit, right? The momentum (laughs) behind it is getting ahead of its actual practicality and feasibility as a unit. Um, Right, brief interjection, and I'm noticing people talk about the 210 already. So there was some work and research through the through the late 70s, and it, it kind of culminated in... Because there were lots of multiple units appearing through that period, so there were body shells and things popping up, and, and one such was the Class 210, which made use of a multiple unit, essentially a multiple unit body shell, strengthened at one end, and with a big diesel motor uh, <laughs> at this end. So if I, if I press my boutons here... You can see this end, and we've talked about this in the in the in the one five eight episode. As you know, this bit was all this was all diesel engine, which obviously is not great for uh, either mass distribution or um, or passenger capacity because you've sacrificed a load of seats there to fit your engine in. But anyway, there's the class two ten, um, and um, and it well. That wasn't a particular success either, frankly, but for different reasons. I mean, for those reasons, it was it was a bit heavy. And but the two ten, the reason I put this in is because the two ten appears in some of the data that you bring up, will bring up later. So, yeah. figures it's, it's worth us being remembering that in nineteen eighty one the two ten is appearing. So it's um, going to be a two prong strategy. Yeah, but... exactly. And uh, I'm just going to hide our faces briefly because I'm we're we're covering up the top management brief thing. But there we are. So these two. Um, uh, these two letters here. Tell us about these. So this is this is the testing ongoing. And actually, I think I have a video of the ongoing testing that I'm going to fling up in a second. But but kind of tell us how this is going. So this, well, yeah. So this is actually when the when the, the prototype tours the country uh, in the middle of 1981. And and yeah, they they 
this is probably where the myth about Pearson starts to appear, really. Mm. Because what you've got on the left is a public relations release that is meant to go to the newspapers. What you've got on the right is a management briefing that went around inside British Rail. Um, and they're almost identical, very similar in wording. And yeah. basically, both of them are sort of saying, OK, so the 210 is mentioned there, but basically both of them are saying, you know, um, you know, we're bringing in this rail bus. Um, it's fantastic. You know, it does a top speed effect, 75 MPH. It's, it's weight is 30% less than a conventional two-car train. And it's a, a significant saving in operations and fuel consumption. So don't forget the context here. This is just after um, the second oil crisis. Um, after the Iranian revolution in the late 70s, so 78, yeah. 79. So, so oil, I think, and the price of oil took on a bigger significance then than it does now as well. Um, so, so a lot of this is kind of they're very concerned about, okay, if we get a lighter train, then, you know, it'll cost as much as a bus to run, essentially. It'll be much cheaper to run. And they're already, yeah, and they're, so they're talking about the strategy for replacement uh, here. You can sort of see they're talking yep. about, so this is in the management, and this is talking about uh, it would be uneconomic to use class 210s as a general replacement for all existing DMUs. At this point, the 210 is seen as the as the longer term DMU, kind of the, the, the more intense DMU service. So it's very, so yeah. it's interesting. And so this video that I'm about to play, hopefully with reasonably audible, actually, let me just check. Uh, hopefully with the sound being reasonably audible. Kevin, you won't hear it, I'm afraid. But this video so hopefully is, is going to be useful because um, I think that it's really interesting what the BR person says at the end, the BR manager at the end, clearly reading from, or clearly mentally reading from a script. And I think the line that they give is really interesting. So we'll, we'll, we'll listen to that next to be developed by British Rail's Research and Development Division. It's been built in collaboration with Leyland bus manufacturers and BR is pleased with the results because operating costs have been cut while standards of passenger comfort remain high. After today's demonstration, the train will go into service on the Springburn Cumbernauld and Glasgow East Kilbride and Barhead routes, which have had closure threats hanging over them. I just pause it there. So that's just the bit you might re- you've you've watched this video. I know Kevin because I think you told me to watch it in the first place. Um, that's where they've just said all the places that the pacer will run in Gla- in and around Glasgow, which I always laugh at because uh, they trialed it and Glasgow said no. <laughs> never never came back north of the border until it until it arrived in the the, the Keith and Dufton railway. Anyway, sorry. I shall continue. The the important quote is still coming up. Kevin, this is just silence for you. I'm so sorry. So might rail bus throw such routes a lifeline in time to come? Well, of course, in Scotland, we've got a lot of rural lines, and we're seeking ways of economising in the way we operate them. And I think this train, it's, uh, you, know, you know, lightweight construction, it's about 30% lighter than our normal DMU sets. I think it could be used to great effect in Scotland. But uh, the purpose of today's exercise, and the other ones you've mentioned, is to get passenger reaction to how they operate, whether they like them, and we're really waiting to reflect the views of the passengers because at the end of the day, they're the ones that count. Through market research, it'll now be up to passengers to say what they think of Railbus. Incidentally, BR's critics can relax. Railbuses run today went strictly to time. Oh, there we are, the classic to time uh, pun at the end. Right, let's bring, uh, let's bring our little faces back in the top corner. So that's, Kevin, you didn't hear any of that, but I think you remember what he said. And you can see his face, you saw his face while he's delivering it. And he's talking about, you know, we're looking at ways to economize and using the word, the phrase rural railway lines, all these, all these familiar buzzwords. And, and as you say, those two letters that you put up previously start showing that there is a, there is a, 
essentially a confected message being created around these units already. Yeah, that's the party line, is that, you know, even though they're trailing them in urban areas. Um, it's Yeah, so, right, data. We have some data that we've, we've put up. So uh, we're slightly covering it, but at this end you can see there's the... Uh, well, let me just do this. Uh, I've got to just make sure I've got... I'm flicking between text and... Anyway, this this here, uh, Kevin's face is hovering, but this is, this is 101. So this is referring to the kind of the existing uh, light... Kind of the existing diesel multiple unit uh, as a comparison. So... Um, so here you can see the comparator is this is the lightweight GMU, this is the pacer, and then it's comparing between the between the kind of the two ten, which is still at this point. I think these data sets are coming in around the time of the discussion being that the choice really is between the D, the, the strategy is the lightweight DMU versus the the class two ten. So tell us what we're looking at here. Yeah, so well, it's, well, it's basically that that's the idea is that there's going to be the lightweight DMU and the class two ten, but what they're saying. What they're trying to say here, or show here, is that this is energy consumption mm. in kilowatt hours. And basically, the lightweight, so this this is based on test runs, at least I think it is. Right? And it, it's, it's yeah, it's showing that the, the lightweight DMU basically has superior energy consumption uh, on all of these very different routes, perhaps. So it yeah. shows have a risk quite a long route. You probably wouldn't have used it there. It probably doesn't, you know, doesn't show that much compared to the 101 there, but it does dramatically the 210. Yeah, dramatically better than the two ten, and marginally better than the the one hundred one. You can yeah. see that it's it's marginal a marginal improvement in in, in energy efficiency against the one hundred one. One hundred one being pretty lightly built as a unit, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting compared, but obviously drastically better. Certainly for that longer on that longer route, drastically better than the than the two ten. But actually, the two ten was not good for energy consumption. So it's an interesting and, and not particularly useful comparison, actually. But anyway, so this so this is the this is the idea inside a DMU. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the. So the uh, interesting question about energy consumption compared to modern units. I don't know. Actually, I should have looked that up. Probably uh, do some googling, everyone. I'm sure in the chat this is what the ch this is what the real matter chat's all about. I'm sure someone will go and Google yeah. that. Um, anyway, right. So uh, the next slide is about running times, um, and it's the same the same trialed routes that, that, that kind of we just looked at there. Um, and you can see that we've got you know Shrewsbury Aberystwyth is um, is kind of so we've got uh, 81 uh, 81 miles. Uh, quite a number of intermediate stops, uh, 60 mile an hour uh, line speed. Oh, that's it. They've improved that since then. Um, and the, so the, the pacer does it in, I presume this is in minutes, 213. Yeah, the 210 is kind of about the same, 209, 216. And then the 101 is quite a lot slower. So the, the, all these, the, these data, this data, which to me, you know, this is data they've got on trials. You can see the early data, presumably using the 140, um, is looking favorable, right? Yeah, so remember, speed's not. So that's the thing is that, like, so it's not, we're not kind of talking about, you know, journey shrinking here as such, necessarily, but it's kind of evidencing that it's good enough to compete at this time. Um, yeah. Although, so, and, and although part of the thing that does become important later, actually, is the ability to run, you know, shorter, kind of faster journeys that have faster acceleration. Yeah. So it's not necessarily the top speed of the train, but it's the acceleration of the train when you're on a short distance line, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, so to some extent, they're kind of trying to show that, but they're also trying to show it's comparable to the 210, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as well. So it's trying. So what they're trying to do here is, is that they're using the evidence from these test runs, really, uh, to try and construct a case for running, though, for building the lightweight DMU for 
for commissioning it. And as ever, constantly, the comparison is between the Pacer and the 210. The 210 is continually being placed as the comparator vehicle, yeah. despite the fact that probably at the point that that, that interview is happening, certainly, um, the 210 was already being written off as not the not the future, um, which is which is really interesting. So um, then I think this this letter is interesting because it starts showing that there's trouble at Mill. Uh, yeah. that everything yeah. is not quite all rosy with this marvelous prototype lightweight DMU thing. Um, and I think yeah, there's, there's probably more. That you, in fact, I think you've got some more data that you can let us know kind of behind the scenes as well in relation to this. But I think it's interesting to. Um, yeah, this is. <laughs> the agreed program yeah. was designed as quickly as, uh, to, to establish as quickly as possible uh, the causes of failure, leading to corrective action and arrangements. Yeah, so so you can see, um, you know, if the word failure is appearing, then clearly this is not all happening uh, without hiccup. Yeah, so basically, Leyland were insistent. So their subsidiary was a company called Self Changing Gears, and this is kind of old fashioned capitalism in which you buy as much from you know within the company as possible so that, that so it's only it's kind of the 80s when you get this kind of big unbundling and firms that are sort of told oh only do what you're good at by consultants so yeah. by this time Leyland they're insistent that their gears are the best right and <laughs> now and 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 there is some you know so there's some evidence that the gears actually on the in transmission on the Leyland National weren't very good but <laughs> um but but yeah, what, what we see here is quite interesting is, is that basically at every stage of this process, they say, oh, we've identified that the gears, the gearboxes are a problem, the transmission's a problem. Um, it, it doesn't support the train, you know, the train's acceleration very well. We get gearbox failure. I think part of the problem was it for a lot of the components was that they were transferring route to rail. And so different forces were acting on the train. Mm. essentially so when a real vehicle goes you know into a corner it keeps going into the corner uh, in a different way to which now you're, you're better qualified in this area than me Gav, so stop me from talking nonsense. No, no, no. But basically it kind of but basically this is the thing is that the, the 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 forces that act on the train are very different and so um and so you know <laughs> the, the a lot of the kind of automotive components which weren't of the highest quality in the first place then turn out mysteriously not to be particularly resilient in a train, which is going to then travel from, you know, Upper Eastwith to, yeah, to Birmingham. Yeah, there's long distances. And, and so, yeah. And, so and this, already there were these, yeah. there was feedback coming from engineers who were looking. So, so this, so this being spearheaded by the the passenger kind of sector within BR, the passenger group within BR, but the engineering function, the this the the chief mechanical engineer, as it probably still was at that point. Um, their team started looking at this and getting because it had kind of largely happened without much input from the regular BR engineering yeah. teams, and so they started getting hold of this and looking at it and and they weren't just moaning because it's not their train. They were pointing out serious flaws in the way that this thing was built. They're saying this thing is going to rattle itself to pieces. It is just not designed to cope with the the kind of the the, the fact that it you know the bus travels on pneumatic tires and bounces around that means that it's not very energy efficient but it means that it doesn't have to be quite as as resiliently built whereas a rail vehicle because it's much more rigid you've got that load transfer through steel on steel it, it everything has to be kind of more resilient but as a result of that it's much more energy efficient this was the worst combination of both in that it was lightweight not very resilient but running on steel on steel 
And so there were already complaints from the engineers, I think. I think you picked up on some of these things. Yeah, so they talk about vibration, they talk about torsional stress, which is basically why uh, beams start to twist uh, because of the stress that they're being put under. So there's all of these kinds of problems. Um, but even things like the seat trims, the driver's desk, the controls, so there are lots of ones of the driver's desks and the control systems, uh, yeah. uh, the multiple unit control system, there's a problem of track circuits okay. in that um, when the train runs on unless you use tracks right rural railways right yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> you know? mm. right so you run to whitby you know four times a day when it runs on lesser used tracks the the track circuit technology might not work as well um so it's fine when it's in busy stations you know it's fine at waterloo but it's not it's it's not fine at you know on, on the branch to whitby on, or wherever. on lesser so, used so, branch lines which allegedly are it's are supposed to be its destination yeah 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 so all of these kinds of problems. And, and, and I mean, another great thing is, is that they say, oh, you know, the life of a bus is 15 years, but that's shortened by root salt. Right? So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so the argument is, oh, you know, root salt gets into the bus's engine and corrodes the bus. It won't happen on the railway. <laughs> so that'll be all right. You know, so, yeah. so <laughs> there's a lot so... of thinking like this. It's kind of, it's sort of, it, and I think it's driven by the fact that, you know, it's BR are keen. The passenger department are keen. So people on the, the top board of BR are keen about this. Yeah, passenger and they're just thinking, oh, that's just teething. Those engineers are always complaining. They're just teething problems. We've had yeah. whatever. You know, this thing is this thing is fine. We've got all the numbers. It runs. It, it's great. And actually, mm-hmm. so um, so anyway, keep conscious of time. We've already busted the hour. I hope you're all right, Kevin. You don't mind sticking on until we've finished, do you? You don't mind? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Sorry to everyone who wants to go and have dinner, but uh, uh, it won't be. We're not going to be too long. Don't worry. Anyway, 1984. This thing arrives in 1984. So bearing in mind, we've still, we've, we're still, uh, we haven't got a pacer running in full service yet. Three years after it was being trialed, or four years after it's been trialed, still haven't got it in service yet. Clearly, some issues. Meanwhile, this little pipsqueak appears. The class 150, actually looking very shiny here. I think uh, this is. I think this is it. In, in fact, this is definitely in trial because it's, it's one of Dave Coxon's photos, and he was he used to do train testing. So, um, so here's a nice picture. Thanks, Dave, for the photo. Nice picture of a 150. This thing appears. And it isn't. It doesn't have the problems of the two hundred and ten because it has distributed um, power. Um, it's pretty lightweight, actually, and it's it's got bogies. So it and it's also built as a rail vehicle. So it, it kind of it's solving all the problems that the you know it's not as rubbish as the two hundred and ten, and it's not as rubbish as the pacer. So um, and much I know lots of people don't like the one hundred and fifty, and lots of people don't like sprinters, but this is satisfying all of the problems that both the two hundred and ten and the pacer had. Um, anyway, so. Meanwhile, so that was 1984, and all of a sudden we do get an operational pacer. The 141 appears. Hooray, boo! And here, I love that they've both got special written in there. Um, I like that. Anyway, uh, yeah, they're both special trains. Absolutely. So here is a horribly knackered looking uh, 141. This might be at Weirdale, actually. Uh, I maybe. Could... It looks too big for Weirdale. Oh, I think. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's 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 on a heritage line anyway. It's on one of the yeah. uh, maybe it could be Keithley and Worth Valley. I don't know. Anyway, it, 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 I think it's in one of the northern heritage railways. Here it is. Here is the one four one. It gets running. It happens. Um, and uh, so uh, you'd think, hooray! But actually, these they're probably not that well received. Anyway, we're going to skip. We're going to skip forward. So these things are not that well received, frankly. Lots of problems. In fact, yeah, you've, you, I think you've got some issues that, you, that you've got uh, on a slide about these when they entered service. So the, Yeah, so basically the same problems persist. So even though we saw before that they're saying, oh, we're going to iron out these 
transmission problems. Um, the transmission problems remain, and there's still problems of braking, transmission, the track circuit problems still there. The long wheelbase means that they squeal on curves. Um, yeah, and, and there's kind of rough riding of a joint track, and again, real railways or um, less modernised railways in the north of England or in the west country, they're not continuous welded rail yet. Yep. So, so again, you don't have that same. So, so, so all of these things actually, it turns out that you know a cheap train doesn't go well for cheap railway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. So, and the Americans the had already uh, worked this out. They, we did. We once again, we've not learned lessons from our American friends who knew that if you have a knackered rubbish railway, you need you actually need good trains and good locomotives and rolling stock. Well, the other thing that's kind of significant here as well is actually the pictures in West Yorkshire livery. Yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, and it was actually the. So, what happened was is that it appears that they're so desperate for the production run that BR, um, they promised that West Yorkshire could reduce uh, Section 20 payments if they took on the 141, uh, 141s. Um, but as soon as 141s came into service, they start to have really big operational problems. So, and at one point, you know, the fleet of availability is horrendous. So, I know that, you know, these problems are common in new trains, but this is a particularly bad mm. case in that, you know, at one point so there was a fleet of 20 and at one point only six were available for service. Um, I mean, I only vaguely remember seeing one four winds in operation myself at York oh, a couple yeah. of times because they didn't really come up to the northeast. But, yeah, uh, but they looked weird because they were they're also bus width. Yeah, they they were like they did not use the whole of the of loading gauge. They were just the same width as the buses had been. So they hopeless yeah. big gaps to the platform. Uh, I mean, that's not really been improved with the paces. They've always been awful for accessibility. But the yeah, just not um, just weird. Well, weird the accessibility trends. thing was also an issue because um, in the prototype, so so the accessibility could have been planned in because the prototype was actually built with a low floor. Ah, interesting. But but there was a problem with. Um, it meant that the 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 part above the door, I forget the name of it, was was out of line with the rest of the body shell. They didn't like this, so uh, so basically, they could have been lower the lower See, the this... floor and have steps going in. So a, a kind of a yeah, a I'd have been a, a fan of the pacer if it had like, if it had a, if it had a nine hundred and fifteen millimeter floor height. I'd have I'd have maybe hated them less. Crikey, yeah, yeah good grief! Yeah. It's interesting how these things go. We have a, we have a question, by the way. It's a good question. Uh, remember to at me in, so I spot your question. But um, oh, I need to scroll up because other people have been chatting since. Uh, Mr. Tim Dunn from London asks, um, something I haven't been able to resolve, when did the Pacer branding first appear? Was it the 141 or the 142? Oh, good question. Well, I think it, I think it comes with the 142, but who, where it came from is actually still a mystery to me. Ah, interesting. Okay. So that's that's one thing I haven't been able to find out. Is, was it? I was think it, it I mean, might this is... have been because... I think it might have been to give it a name that wasn't Sprinter. Yeah, I was going to say, was it as a result of the was it as a result of the the Sprinter branding appearing? Which did the Sprinter branding come with the one? When did the Sprinter branding appear? Actually, was it with the one fifty or was it actually late? No, it was the Sprinter did appear with the one fifty. I'm sure of it. I think so. Yeah, but I think these were names that were given to it by the provincial division, which only started. So it starts in eighty two, and it takes over. I think it basically takes over BR Passenger for you know non-london lines so 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 i think that these would these would be the names that come in after so that yeah they're, they're kind of coming after sectorization basically yeah okay yeah but yeah. but the pacer is not a product of sectorization it's a product of an earlier period really yeah 
So there, so there, so the answer, Tim, is uh, we don't know. We're not sure. Uh, not I guess sure, it's but... around about the time the sprinter ran appeared. But so the sprint, the, so the one fifty and the one four one appeared at the same in the same year, eighty four. Um, does that mean that Pacer was given that name? Yeah. When was I suppose? Yeah, we'd have to. I'd have to have a look and see when when uh, provincial. Yeah. Well, they were also launched as skippers originally in the West Country. Ah, okay. So there's I'm not already quite a. Sure. Yeah, so I, I, I'm not sure exactly when they first started to use that title, but they got that name quite quickly afterwards, actually. Yeah, Certainly yeah. by the late, 90, late 80s, early 90s, they were yeah. well known as Pacers. Talking of which, yeah. so the, these having been these having been resoundingly hated and getting shipped off to Iran, actually, actually they were shipped off to Iran in the 90s, I think. But anyway, yeah. um, these were hated. Uh, or they, they weren't well received, I don't think. Um, so they were followed up by more. Uh, so only a year <laughs> later, actually. Wait a minute. This, this is eighty-four. Actually, in eighty-five, you got the one forty-two. So it must have been a very short run of one four ones. Not a large run of trains, only followed 20. by the one forty-two, which which was basically looked the same, but actually expanded to. So the one forty-two um, expanded to fill out railway gate, you know, loading gauge. So it's a bit fatter and kind of looks a bit weird as a result, I think. And then even more derpy looking. Is the one forty three, which was built by not by Leyland at all. I think it was built up in Glasgow by uh, by Alexander. Alexander, yeah, and um, uh, yeah, Barclay, and uh, yeah, I, Barclay, yeah, Hunslet, Barclay, and Alexander combined, right, to put this thing together. Um, so that's the one forty three. So that's those two. So uh, nineteen eighty five, we got the paces that we that are, that were, and indeed, unfortunately, still are bashing around on the network. But the um, important thing there is, is that they kind of say, oh, if we just make it rail size and if we put, we reduce the amount of automotive components in and put more rail original components in, it'll work. It'll be fine. Which, which two problems. Firstly, public image of these trains has already been embedded with the 141. So they've already, yep. they're already fighting an uphill struggle. And fundamentally, you know, this is fundamentally a train born out of a different design ethos. And so trying to reverse that to sprinterize it ain't going to, it just ain't going to work and potentially it's going to cause more expensive bodges. Um, so anyway, there's the 142 and the 143. So data time. Oh, this is, this is a fun thing because this is an invoice for a pacer, right? This is an invoice for a class 142, yeah. unit, is- unit 78. Yeah. So basically this tells us that they paid 364 a thousand pounds a unit so and it, it, the original so you've got to kind of be careful because um so i noticed my old student barry is here who uh <laughs> regular, regular viewer hey barry hey barry the, jones the importance of inflation and and, and in this period it, you know so when they start talking about you know commissioning the 141 they're kind of looking at two hundred fifty thousand a unit so that ah, i don't think that's unreasonable inflation probably through the 80s to get to 364,000. So I think that they were probably still relatively cheap to buy. But that's where the bargain stops. And I think the whole project yeah. costs them about 16 million or something like that. So it's okay. So they're relatively cheap to buy um, as trains go, right? But, but CapEx but isn't, the, the, isn't, the, isn't the whole picture, is it? This is, this is the issue. Um, which is interesting, as we're going to find out when we get to some of the really juicy numbers later on. Um, what's what's really interesting is that uh, the idea was that these were going to have very low maintenance costs, and indeed, not just the idea, the perception today. We saw Ant, uh, Anthony Coles's statement where he says the where he talks about the perce- perception is that these are low maintenance trains. Anyway, we shall get to that later. 
Um, yeah. So here are some NPV graphs, right? Some net present value graphs. And you're going to have to talk us through these. Firstly, you have to say which one's which because it's not clear. These are in the same order they were on your slide. Yeah. So, so basically uh, what this is about is it's trying, they're trying to project here um, how many trains they need to buy to do a certain mileage that the old DMUs would have, used, would have done. So what's quite interesting here is, is that the so the one on the far left is replaced by lightweight. So lightweight is a pacer. Okay, so it's got a fairly, you know, it's got a reasonable sleep. And yeah, it's true that basically to do a hundred thousand miles, you know, and it, it it you can you can replace kind of uh, you know, not point seven of a pacer roughly can replace one DMU. Basically, it's a kind of point. Ah, so, okay, so it's the, I so, get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got so, you. so what you can see then is now often what's great in archives is it's the person that originally prepared the thing or was interpreting it that marks on it what they think is ah. quite useful because what you've then got further over are the break-even points for sprinters. That's a and, the, and the point is, is that where they put those circles in, they're kind of saying, well, what we find is that it, it you know, only takes kind of, you know, one sprinter... It only needs to become over sort of seventy thousand miles, or, yeah, or even sixty thousand so, miles on the right, to replace one DMU basically. So, what one sprinter can do by the time you get to the graph on the right is replace one free car low density unit. So this last one is sprinter. This is this is sprinter as well. Yeah, so that's sprinter as well. So this is really okay. So the first and second graphs are quite comparable. I realise as well that part of the problem is the reproduction is not great because it's my. Is he taking a photo? <laughs> it's actually David. I think no. I think it was either me or David would have taken the photo of the original. So that's you know photo from the original from the National Archive. So 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 sorry about you know my Chris Whitty well off graphs here that are not very good. <laughs> yeah, but, that, 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 I, but basically what they're trying to say is is that the the curve gets steeper with the sprinter. Right, the more that so it's kind of comparable, and the person might have an advantage when you've got a kind of old fashioned power car, trailer car unit. Uh, but when you start getting into kind of replacing higher density trains, the sprinter becomes more advantageous, and it's more, um, it's and, and it, the, the other thing about the sprinter that becomes important, and you see this in a lot of the reports they write at the time, is that what they're starting to think about is replacing locomotive hold trains with DMUs as well. Mm. And, you know, they're well down on local hall in this period. Sorry, enthusiasts, but they are. And, <laughs> and, they, and, and, that's, and this is part of the thing, because what they're interested in with this project as well is they want to have fewer trains overall. Okay, so that part of the projects that are going on is that, so the lightweight, it kind of starts with the lightweight idea. That's why the 210 dies, I think, probably. But then the, what the sprint is particularly good at is because is it has the fast acceleration they want. It has the low running costs they want. But it's also more versatile. You can get a similar number of people into three or two cars of a sprinter that you can to a local hold six carriage train. Yeah. So this or is what's saying here. Is that, so this last DMU. graph, as you say, the last graph here, the, the, the key point of this last graph, much steeper. So so the point is that a two car sprinter um, is replaced. You know, a two car sprinter has the same number of seats as a three car low density old series multiple unit. Yeah. Um, and so you're getting the return on that much. So within a hundred thousand miles, you're you're re replacing kind of one for one. The point, it, kind of one for one, two car sprinter with a three car lower density 
um, at multiple units. And then you say that the local hall would be even steeper than this. You'd expect to see it kind of even, you know, goodness knows what, what steepness, but you potentially get an even steeper line because yeah. the, these these are quite, you know, the, the Mark One coaches that invariably they're, getting, they're replacing are quite, um, or sometimes Mark Twos, quite low density and very expensive and also operationally a pain in the backside. And also there's all the implications of requiring stabling and shunting and all these things that you don't need. Multiple units, local hall is hopeless for modern railway operation. Um, Transpennine only did it through uh, kind of through the fact the supply chain said, we can't give you the multiple units you need. Um, you know, uh, and so that, that local hall is not actually great for, for operational. It's great for Greisers. You know, the fans love them. But from an operational perspective, they're a nightmare. Uh, single point of failure, uh, lots of issues. You know, you've got to kind of move the consist into place. Lots of problems, right? So the sprinter is 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 satisfyingly replacing all of these types of trains and is better at it than a pacer, um, which is what these graphs really show, isn't it? So yeah, yeah. And the two the two become so. This is the thing as well is that the pacers don't. Uh, yeah, the, the the two become almost kind of interchangeable operationally. Mm. I'd say this idea that paces save rural railways again, well, surely sprinters must be in the frame too, because yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 that's the thing is that the, the evidence then seems to show that actually paces that actually sprinters were cheaper to run over the long term than paces were. Indeed, and we have not, we have receipts for that, by the way. Matt Reed, your question's a very good one. How much more expensive were the sprinters' maintenance and cost compared to the pacers? We're getting there. So yeah. this is the crux of it, right? Did pacers save any rural railways? And this is where you're, this is your, this is the, where you get to plant on the table all of your juiciest data, which I've lined up here in, in order of your conclusions. I think so. Um, firstly, we've got this line here, right? This this little extract here. So tell tell us about this extract here, and, and, and tell us what it's saying. It's it's in fact I'll read it out for the benefit of the. Uh, I'm conscious there are listeners on this. I'm, I'm dreadful. It's right. So this is quite a long paragraph. I'm going to do it though. It is true that much of our future diesel railcar build will be in the form of medium-weight bogey units. So already they're writing the pacer off there. This is because our studies have shown that on many services, a combination of one- and two-car bogey units is in fact cheapest. In particular, where traffic exceeds the capacity of a twin-unit rail bus, it is cheaper to buy and operate a two-car bogey unit than a three-car rail bus. However, we do foresee a significant role for the rail buses, hence the current order for 75 two-car units and the likelihood of further such orders being placed. I always find this paragraph weird. It's like, pacers aren't really worth their salt and sprinters are better. However, we have ordered a load of pacers. Hooray! That was yeah, a bit of a weird, <laughs> two different it's paragraphs. Because, it's because it's strategically they're committed to pacers, whether they like yeah. it or not. So this is the thing, is that they've already realised that they're not as versatile as, pay, as sprinters, but they, they're kind of already... So they, they, they bought... They, so they... They bought that kind of tranche of one four twos and then one four threes, and then they're already kind of again looking even in eighty five at authorization of eighty six even I think at authorization to try and build more of them as well. Oh um, so yeah. so so they're still thinking about it even though they're kind of saying here. So what the what the context of this is is that this is in response. Sometimes in archives, what's unfortunate is you don't get the. You, you only get one side of the conversation, but this is a copy letter of a response apparently sent to Portuguese railways about an inquiry into Pacer rail buses really? and their effectiveness. And, and in this, they kind of list lots of the problems with the transmission and the wheel squeal and the, the, the track circuits and all these kinds of things. And then they say, well, OK, but they have been OK in some ways, you know, um, that's and that's the interesting thing. And, and uh, yeah, and so they, they're, they're still 
And part of the problem is, is that because of the investment horizon and the delivery times and the fact that it took, so it, it, they order from September 81, I think, the 141s were, were authorised and it took until 83 for them to be delivered, for example. So you, you've got these long lead trains, uh, trains times, you've got these long lead times on trains. That means that you kind of got, you know, you've got a strategy where it takes time to follow through. So they still have to say, oh, we're committed to them. Yeah. And what's interesting, of course, is at this time, all the, the sprinters are starting to appear and are becoming, are seen more popular. They, suddenly they're re, it's realised that they are, they are far more successful, not just the numbers side, but they are, they're received better by passengers. And, um, and so, you've, you know, the 150 is, let's face it, quite a, a, a rudimentary vehicle. You know, it's better than a Pacer, frankly, but it's, you know, possibly not quite as obviously better. But by the time you get into the 156, which is a very competent unit, suddenly the, the number, you know, you're starting to see these, the, 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 the success and, and the kind of the, the, the positive feeling from the public of these sprinters is, yeah, clearly a problem. The Pacer is clearly being realised as a problem. As Socorro has said, the second half of this is really basically saying, however, we have ordered them and now need to explain why we made that mistake. Uh, yes. Yeah. So yeah. this this slide is possibly the, the, the most fun slide in this whole presentation, right? Yeah. So this so, is the crux so, of it. So this comes in a yeah, this comes in a more financial report, but but yeah, this is so this is about nineteen eighty seven when they're looking at ordering eighty six, eighty seven when they're looking at future kind of orders. And this yeah. ends up being orders for things like the one five eight and trains going in that direction. But what they show here is basically that um yeah, when fifties appear to be cheaper to operate. So this is made so, to so be- yeah. I can shove it. I can I can emulate because this is very difficult to read because uh, of a mixture of uh, either yourself or Dr. David Turner's terrible photo work. Uh, well, it's kind of a photocopy of a photo. But also, there's a lot. Of, yeah, I was going to say there's, there's a lot of pr- there's a lot of printer burn there as well. <laughs> a copy of burn. So the class 108 cost per annum for maintenance. The total annual, basically the total annual outgoing to run this unit, five hundred twenty-one thousand a year. Right. This is about. You say this is around in eighty-seven numbers. You reckon? Yeah, so this is roughly 87 numbers. And remember, that's kind of a life-expired unit as well. Yes, yeah. So, so that's so, a, a really old unit. So that's a lot of money because the thing is falling yeah. to bits. So the newer units, Class 142, annual uh, cost for maintenance, around 250000 255000 actually, um, per annum. Yeah. Now, the 150 is 234000 per annum. So... <laughs> It's beating the pacer by twenty thousand a year. That's quite. That's quite a substantial betterment. And it's adding up. And the, the the thing I really like is at the bottom it talks about um, the summary of savings over existing units. And one of the things that really fascinates me there is, is that it appears to claim that one four two only saves one staff member, whereas really? one fifty saves nineteen. Oh, I didn't pick these out. So these are down here. Let me okay. scribble on these. So show show but, people so, what I'm talking about. So this is. Uh, so this is summary of where's me where's me thing gone here summary so this is saying summary of savings over existing units uh so this is talking about hours so this is yeah, talking so about hours. standard hours and then it, it kind of shows the these, so these are about comparable the so they're, they're about comparable but this is the key staff this is incredible <laughs> staff saving as you say staff saving one compared <laughs> to staff saving of 19 i don't know if i completely believe that 
That's, yeah, well, is it because but, of the is it because of increased maintenance requirements, and so that they are just taking that much extra depot staff to? I mean, that seems quite a radical difference. But there yeah, we go. But what is certainly a factor here is is that so you see in so this in some of the documents that they're talking about if we replace it, you know, one of the things about replacing transits is that they wanted to close depots. Yeah. Okay. So they thought that if they had more reliable trains and, and fewer trains. Okay, they need fewer trains to operate the same service, or even more frequent services. Actually, so this is one of the other ways I think yeah. it's kind of this is a Bob Reed era now. You know, uh, sort yeah. of thinking, oh, we can run more frequent services as well with fewer trains. Um, what Sweating they're sort the of asset more, bring really close close down depots. So, yeah. you know, because most of the depots that were around were not actually the ones that the train spotters liked. Um, <laughs> You know, you know, a lot of them were kind of DMU depots, right? And, yeah. you know, there's, there's York, Lincoln, uh, Doncaster, Newcastle, you know, so there's a whole list of them listed. Um, so York was definitely closed, for example, uh, out of it. Uh, Lincoln, I think, was probably closed. I'm not sure. But, you know, so there's, there's a whole list of depots that... These can do more, you know, per diagram, these, the, you know, the newer units can do more than, than the old multiple units. Um, yeah, and, and and so you get we're getting closer to the model of operation we have now, where we really sweat the hell out of track and train. Um, so, so that's a fantastic slide. That's that's one of the best slides in here in terms of in terms of data. Is, is the obvious? Nope, pacers cost more annually to look after and run. Um, and then this, so that's one factor is annual maintenance. But that's not the whole picture because the, you know there was a general feeling of. Um, a general feeling that the that the pacers were you know so this this is a letter from the pas passenger transport exec the tyne and weir passenger transport executive now nexus talking about the replacement of gearbox of the 143 gearboxes so even the newer pacers were really prob not just annual regular maintenance but they were like fundamentally flawed units so tell, tell us yeah. about this letter and its implications yeah so basically with every build they say oh we'll solve the gearbox problems it'll be fine kind of thing and and what this ends up with is that when so when the the trains are introduced around regions, uh, basically again, and with the one forties and one forties, you get horrendous reliability problems. I mean, David found an article from the Newcastle Journal from about the same period as this, nineteen eighty seven, when they're basically reporting on so Tang and Way, of course, had made its own arrangements for rail, except for the Newcastle to Sunderland line, so they had their own metro, but they. But they, so basically, for those that don't know, um, PTEs were bodies that still exist, but with a lower profile now than they used to, that, that basically commissioned local rail services from British Rail through what were called Section 20 payments. Mm. Um, and, and in this case as well, they had also, so British Rail had kind of convinced them in some cases as well to actually buy the vehicles themselves or fund the vehicles themselves. And what had happened here was is that um, you know, so some of the 142s went into British Rail, 143s went in British Rail's pool, if you like, which ran on non-PTE lines like, say, Whitby or um, sort of to places like Cleefops or kind of places like this that fall out of PTEs. And then you have trains which are running on Newcastle to Sunderland or from sort of Leeds to Bradford or around Manchester as well that you know, were owned by the PTEs. And what happened was is that British Rail were actually then they sort of um, so British Rail kind of find or they decide that replacing the self-changing gears gearbox with a VoIF gearbox, basically a gearbox made by a different manufacturer. Yeah, VoIF transmissions are kind of common. You see them, and I think there are someone. Yeah, I mean they're quite common in, in rail use. So yeah. 
Well, basically, they spend. So I've seen as well the figures for this. They spend six million pounds over. So they start replacing them in 1987, I think it is, and it takes till 1992 to get through the entire fleet. So there are some invoices for this in the files as well. <laughs> um, and, it, you know, it costs a lot of money. And one of the things that British Rail tried to do is get the PTEs to pay for their own trains. Yeah, I, I think so it's worth me given... reading. It's, it, there's a fantastic the, the penultimate paragraph here, which I, I love, which is I, I'm just going to read this. Uh, wait a minute, is this, this is Tyne and we're a passenger transport executive, so everyone yeah. from the northeast is about to get offended because I'm going to probably end up doing like a Middlesbrough accent now. <laughs> you refer in your letter to the PTE's Pacer vehicles, but I must make it quite clear that they are British Rail's vehicles. We put up the money for them rather than having funding come through the S20 agreement because it was financially advantageous for us to do so. In view of the fact that they are British rail vehicles, and because we were not involved in the specification other than livery, we consider it to be your responsibility to ensure that they achieve satisfactory levels of performance and reliability. If British rail specified an unsatisfactory gearbox, or was provided with one which is clearly not suitable, it is up to British rail to rectify the situation, regardless of what service the vehicles are used on, and to be responsible for all contractual aspects and financial liabilities." I love the idea of, like, they're not bloody our vehicles, you rotters. Yeah, we didn't have yeah. anything to do with specifying this junk. <laughs> That's basically what that paragraph says, and I love it. Yeah, I love it so did. much. And I end up, basically, what happens is, is that Tain and Weir argue that British Rail are failing in their contractual obligation to provide a service in Newcastle to Sunderland. So bad it is. I know. And they end up trying to take them to court. So they nearly take British Rail to court over this. Uh, I need to look a bit further into that into as to how far that actually gets. But the fact that it got bad enough that they're kind of saying, well, you know, basically, and these are public sector bodies arguing with each other, right? You know, but basically, that you know, they, they, they're saying, well, we, you know, this council tax pays money. This is a, you know, this is a public body. Back yeah, yeah. The, and what, know, what was interesting in your in your in, in the presentation you gave was someone talked about the West Midlands Passenger Transport Executive, and. Um, and the fact the West Midlands Passenger Transport Executive didn't want to know. They had yeah. little, absolutely zero interest in these in the Pacers. They Clearly, someone within the organisation had come from a background where they looked at it and they just thought, that's junk. We aren't having that anywhere near our system. Um, yeah, and, it's, it, and so that, that was a really interesting interjection from someone who, who attended your, the presentation you gave. It was, that was quite interesting, getting that history there. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. yeah. So, the next thing we're going to skip on to, because it's already half past eight, um, is, is the Serpil report, right? So everyone says, oh, Serpil was going to close railways, and, and this is, again, cited as Abbott, and the Pacers stopped it happening. But the reality is, and, and I'm kind of putting words into your mouth, but you know, yourself and David both make this case very, very uh, kind of clearly. The political re- reality was that the idea that railway lines were going to be able to be closed at this point was just for the birds. It, that, that ship had sailed. So much political capital had been spent on closing, on indeed the battle to close the Settle Carlisle, which failed, incidentally. So much political capital had been spent that the, uh, you know, Portillo had fought to save it. You know, it, it, it had gone. No one was interested in closing railway lines anymore. That, 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 that had gone, you know. So yeah, the idea yeah. that, that there were railways that needed saving is sort of it doesn't doesn't stand up to scrutiny, does it? Yeah, there's relatively little interest in it actually. Um, there's some fear that the PTEs will decide to take the money out and put it in the buses, but that's reversed after bus deregulation, really. When yeah. so the PTEs, a lot of them manage their own bus fleets. 
before deregulation because they'd inherited the old municipal operators. Yeah. But then they're kind of told, oh, you know, you must sell them off. So they do, obligingly. Um, that's another story. But but then what they do to kind of concentrate their power is get into real a lot more. So yeah, so the the yeah, so the the, the idea that you know, railways are under threat in the eighties is really a little bit kind of fanciful I think because it, yeah. there isn't much evidence of this um, uh, because the, the government know it's kind of a vote loser really yeah so even, they've been through um, that pain they don't they, they beat you know the 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 uh, where's the klaxon when I need it uh, you know the whole Ferrari around beaching and the and and kind of yeah. the the first reshaping report was that you know the the amount of capital the, the amount of energy spent by governments in, in and and votes lost and the changing of the of the kind of electoral map as a result of that they didn't want to go through that again you know by this by the time circle is coming out they were kind of towards the end of a of a kind of a long period of concern it wasn't happening but the other thing that's interesting is even if that was on the cards they you know british rail had looked at what that would mean in terms of in terms of changing the amount of rolling stock required and i think and you kind of drew this point that, that if they closed all these lines so you know all, all of these extra lines that potentially could be closed as a result of circle the, the, it basically resulted in, in in only a marginal benefit in terms of rolling stock. You know, just just you know, there'd be a reduction in fleet requirement of of kind of less than a hundred vehicles, which isn't actually very much at all. Yeah, because yeah, you might you know you might lose local authority funding even or PTE funding that sustains the line. But then you know something like you know Inverness to Kyle, you get a train every hour, or not every hour, every four hours or something yeah. rather, yeah. and it needs one DMU. So you know, so a lot, <laughs> you know, so. Um, so a lot of these lines, they really don't actually require that many trains to run them. You know, probably London native line of Fastinio probably has one train on it at a time. I don't know. Yeah, but <laughs> same thing to Matlock. Certainly that did go in the end of course, but certainly that's like six miles. So it doesn't require a hundred D. You know, it doesn't require hundreds of DMUs. So the the point here as well is is that it's a hundred new vehicles, but about six hundred vehicles overall are commissioned. Yeah. Right. So, so this is the thing is that, and that's including sprinters. So, you know, so there's about 170 odd paces, I think, something like that, at the very most, and then the rest are sprinters. But that's the thing is that, you know, the the, the numbers that were needed to keep the system going were still were still high. And this is the thing that the emphasis switches from increasing productivity by closing lines, really, to increasing productivity by, you know, trying to run lines more efficiently. Yeah. Yeah, you had the, the regional railways that. turned it into an art form, you could say. You know, they, they really did do a good job, and, and provincial. And, and you know, they, they were having their own yeah. issues with the fact the sprinters were... They were they, the sprinters did have issues. They weren't perfect units. There were some serious issues on some of the sprinters, particularly the 158s when they came in. And the 158s were also hugely delayed, which caused them a lot of headaches. But by the time the 158s were starting to bed in, they were, you know, they, they were becoming a success story. The other point, of course, in all this... Is that if pacers saved railway lines, why did railway lines still close? Because some railway lines <laughs> did close for various reasons, and you, so the, the Matlock line there is a, is a good example of that. You know, like yeah. they did close. Rural railways did close, and why didn't pacers save those? Which just okay, shows Matlock. that the idea that pacers had anything to do with the destiny of any railway lines in the country is nonsense. It just does, does not hold up to scrutiny. Anyway, there we go. So. Oh, and the last bullet point is is the funniest one, I think, which is that, that for the most part, or well, actually, it's about 50-50, I think you said, is that the paces were being used on sort of high or medium density suburban and urban services, not rural railway lines anyway. 
Yeah, yeah. So this is the thing is that, you know, a good proportion of that fleet are bought by the PTEs and that's why it becomes a big legal issue. Or so, funded by them or, you know, the 141 is originally a commission basically by the West Yorkshire PTE. So, right. So, yeah, you know, yeah. so, so, yeah, so, you know, British will do a sweetheart deal with them. You know, we, we all reduce your subsidy. So kind of, so, so actually, yeah, okay. So they may have run on some, you know, regional lines and they, they ran, you know, in the Blackpool lines and in the Cardiff Valley. So, okay, there wasn't a PTE, but, and in the West Country, but. A lot of the kind of the, you know, so a lot of the political pressure around them and that kind of thing that I referred to earlier, a lot of it comes from the fact that, you know, these trains are running services in Manchester and Leeds areas, um, the Sheffield area, that, that should have been run by much longer trains. Yeah. You know, these, because what also starts to happen, of course, as a result of the, the kind of the new policies from provincial is that people start to use the trains a lot more. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's the, the the change in policies, various policies making rail better, fundamentally better, more accessible, meant more passengers came in, and so these things started constraining demand. Even outside of the PTs, you talk, you know, the Welsh Valleys and even the Southwest, you know, even the the, the yeah. skippers are actually running in suburban a lot of, in a lot of cases. They're actually operating not particularly rural lines at all. They're operating. Yeah, kind Excellent. of semi semi rural kind of or even suburban services um, um, and the reason that and, and you talked about this i think in, in the presentation the re- they didn't find their way up to scotland because actually they were just the idea of them actually successfully running a rural railway service they're not actually good enough to run proper r- rural services well highland um they, this, this one of the so the 140 they put it onto some of the highland lines and highland council basically told them it was a no-goer because it didn't have enough luggage space to carry rucksacks and things like that. So yeah. apart from the fact that I don't, I don't think, I don't know for sure, I doubt a pacer could handle the West Highland line because it's one of the most difficult lines in the country, I believe. I'd love to see it try. But, That'd be fun. But, but, you know, but apart from that, the actual kind of ability to hand, you know, handle heavy luggage and this kind of thing that these lines acquire... Um, is, is actually quite limited, and that's one of the kind of competitive advantages the train has on these lines. Um, yeah. Even even though even though it may still be the case that ferrying everybody by helicopter would be cheaper, but yeah, you know, people are pointing yeah. out that on the Simpson line <laughs> that that British Rail were basically just tax they they, clo- they they didn't officially close it, but they just paid for taxis for everyone who was running it, and it was it was actually cheaper than running the unit. That does say something about the ridership. Although you could argue that if they improved the service, more people would use it anyway. So. We're so late. I'm so sorry, everyone, particularly Kevin and everyone who's trying to watch this and then has given up because we're, we're uh, two hours, uh, nearly at two hours. But it's important because this is a fun episode and there's loads of data to crunch through. And actually, it's been worth every minute. So I don't regret anything. <laughs> so we get to the point. So did Pacers save any rural railways? The answer is, is no. They just I, I just don't see how anyone can come to the end of this and can and, and argue for any of the lines on the country in any way that Pacers save rural railway lines. Um, yeah, it just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Um, but are there any redeeming features of the Pacer at all? Are there any? Uh, here's a picture inside one looking kind of miserable with its bus seats. <laughs> any? Uh, it looks like two absolutely classic Greisers sat in this one as well. They're, they're both with the camera straps hanging down. Both, yeah. Anyway, not that I'm casting aspersions over the rail spotting community, uh, the train spotting community. That would be horrible. But um, it's very brown inside. The thing that I hear as a positive thing is that it has big windows and you can see out. That's that's on, that's the only consistent. Some people like the seats, uh, but I I don't know. I, I've travelled in one of these with the bus seats and I bash my head on it when it went over a bump. So I'm not a fan of the bus seats, frankly. 
Um, and it just has a feeling of not. It just feels tacky inside. It just feel. It just feels like you could push a panel out, and you, your leg would be stuck out. And it just doesn't give you a feeling of comfort and confidence and crash. You know all the things that you, when you get into a train, you want it to feel robust and safe. I mm. think that must be the one for one actually, because it's only two abreast. I, I think it is a one for one. Yeah, and not yeah. a very generous two abreast either. Looking at the. It's 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 narrow. It really is tight and, and cozy, isn't it? Yeah. So so in terms of people pitching in, uh, oh David Shepard asked, did Pacers kill British Rail? No, no, no. They they didn't. They didn't. They weren't big a big enough a deal to do anything. Um, it's brown. There's brown. People are shouting brown. Yes, this is very brown. Very brown indeed. Um, anyway, there we are. I'm not sure about redeeming features. Kevin, any redeeming features you can think of? Um, well, the the, the windows one. <laughs> Yeah, the windows. It's basically, probably, it? they had nice big windows. It's probably a good one. So in scenic lanes, it does work quite well for that. Um, Apparently, they used yeah, to steam it, up it, without much prompting, unfortunately, though. Yeah, That's, but, yeah. But I think they're kind of suboptimal apart from that, really, compared to what you could have got. Yeah. What you could have won. Prefer, yeah. David Bumstead is asking about um, uh, am I going to go into crash with this? No, I'm not even going to touch on it other than the fact there was a crash <laughs> with one of these um, and it just disintegrated into dust. I think it, I think it got hit by a, a, it, it accidentally rolled back in the, into the path of a class 80, a virgin class 87, I think. And it was, it was, it was just, it, yeah, it was, it was, it was Thanos. It was just turned into, into dust. Um, oh. Yes. So there we are. Um, that is, that's the episode. I, that was, there we go. So I'm going to get rid of our faces while I do the closure before we go back to our big faces and we say some thanks to Kevin. So very briefly, uh, in audio-only form, I hope that's all right. And uh, I, I don't know how well this one worked in audio-only form because it's very visual and lots of data, but I'm sure we got the point across. I read some things in a very much a smoggy accent. Uh, it wasn't a tiny and weird accent, I know, but I, I, I default into Middlesbrough because I don't know why, because I watched a lot of shooting stars, I think. Anyway, um, uh, so yes. Audio only form. You can access all good podcasting platforms. Uh, Patreon, do do join, support me on the Patreon. It allows these to happen. Um, it, it makes them happen. Patreon.com slash Gareth Dennis. Uh, also, do click. I, I, this always feels weird to say. Do click the like and subscribe button. We're sitting at. We've been sat at four thousand five hundred subscribers to the channel for ages now. Um, uh, do that and tell your friends to do that as well. Uh, GarethDennis.co.uk slash Discord for the Discord server where all the fun happens. And also PayPal, you know, you can chuck me pennies on there if you so fancy it. So, what's next? What's the next episode? The next episode, it's a goodie. It's the, it's episode 63 of Rail Natter is going to be the Williams Shaps plan for rail, officially out of embargo in an hour and 20 minutes, um, aka what the hell happens next. That's the, that's the episode title. So we're going to go through, I'm, I'm going to page turn, it's going to be a page turn. We've done a lot of page turns recently, but that's because I had a backlog of interesting reports to go through. This is probably the most interesting and important page turn Rail Natter has ever done thus far. So it's going to be interesting. Well, it's not looking good, given that they've already released the type font. So <laughs> if that's the most important feature of it, then it's really not looking good. I mean, strategy I... is not type font. That's, that's ridiculous. That's the last thing they should be thinking about. Yeah, that's, anyway. a, very, that's a very good point. That's a very good point, Kevin. Kevin, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. We, I know we've been brewing this one up for ages, but um, <laughs> it's been really... I hope you had, I hope that was all right for you. Uh, yeah, I... Uh, I had a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. That we we finally gone through pacers and eviscerated them. Hopefully, mm-hmm. uh, it was good stuff. Um, what's your so so? Is there is there a paper? Is there, are there any publications people can expect to see coming off the back of this? Uh, uh, like what's uh, what's next for this this sort of fun fun little project? Yeah, it'll probably take a couple of years, but um, hopefully, you know, get yeah, have at least uh, hoping I have one paper, maybe probably two out of it. There's enough to talk about. I think yeah, there's quite yeah. a lot to talk about here. 
Yeah, well, yeah. two hours worth of rail natter is a good is a good indication of volume. And if any viewers have information that you want to send to um, to Kevin, uh, then yeah. you, I'm sure you can do that. I'm sure Kevin wouldn't mind if you've got if you've got your own sort of archive or or interesting tidbits. Do do send those through. I'm sure that'd be useful. Um, yeah, Kevin. It only really remains for me is sort of uh, sort of say uh, a, a deep thanks from all of the of the Rail Natter community for a, for a, a fantastic episode. All there's a lot of your own hard and David, Doctor David Turner. If you're if you're still watching this, I don't know if you will be, but you might watch and catch up. <laughs> David, if if you're watching, um, thanks for the work that both of you, Kevin and David, the work both of you put into this because it's a really fascinating project. It's really interesting because it it myth busting is important work. You're doing the Lord's yeah. work. And um, yeah, I think uh, lots of people saying they had a lot of fun in this episode. Richard Smith saying this was such a good episode. There you go. Yeah, um, thanks for having me on as well because it, it makes a change. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's uh, yeah, it's 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 good. It's fun to. It's it's possibly not the most conventional form of uh, of of like uh, pay, you know kind of uh, research project dissemination. But anyway, um, oh, it's, good. it's a good form. Yeah, yeah. should do more of it. <laughs> yes, well. This is it. Next project. We'll have to talk behind the scenes as to what the next uh, the next rail natter. Uh, kind of business history uh, crossover is going to be. Anyway, it might well be tram related incidentally. Anyway, right, enough of this. <laughs> Everyone from from both me and uh, and Dr. David Ke- uh, Dr. I've got both of you in my head. I'm going to say both of you. No. Dr. Kevin Tennant and I are both waving to say cheerio. Uh, <laughs> cheerio everyone. Cheerio. Yeah, everyone. Bye.